everybody. It's Don Doc, and you're listening to Corey and Vincent on the Phantasm Podcast. Keep rocking. something i sort of enjoyed it and has them sell the metal sell the metal sell the metal sell the metal Hey, this is Dr. Vincent West, medical doctor with the Phantasm Podcast. Literally one of my favorite people ever in music today. We're speaking with Don Dawkin, and we're going to be talking about the new Dawkin album, Heaven Comes Down, from Silver Lining Music, which comes out October 27th. Don, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, boss. Uh, just a little, I'm a little husky today because I just got home last night from playing for 8,000 crazy fans in Massachusetts, but it was great. Awesome. Night, no rain. So that was fun. It's a huge fair they've been doing forever, but it's been raining for two weeks, so I felt really bad. And we got lucky. We got on stage, and it was like 70 degrees and blue skies, and I was like, great. Awesome. So it was a fun show. Very cool. Um, so this new record, um, when did you start the songwriting process for, the, for this, for Heaven Comes Down? God, um, probably uh, over two years ago or three, maybe. Uh huh. But you know, the world went to hell in a handbasket, you know, because of COVID, and we couldn't tour. And because of the fact that I'd moved out of the state, and my guitar player's in LA, and my rhythm section's in Connecticut, so it took a long time for me to write all the songs. And what slowed us down was, uh, you know, I don't know if you read it on the internet, but my right hand, my right arm got paralyzed. I'm so sorry. So I can't play. Yeah, it sucks. I can't play guitar anymore. I can't play bass. I can't play piano. So it's over, you know. But, you know, I'm over it. It's been three years since my surgery, and the doctor screwed up. So I said, how are we going to make a record? So I just started digging around, you know, all these hundreds of songs I've never finished, and and I said, it's got to be a great record, you know, because this is our last record. Right. You know, we won't be making any more records because I can't play. Right. And, you know, John still plays great, but he he can't get in my head. I have to be there and guide him, you know. Right. So I'm happy. And we actually delivered the album a year ago, finished. Wow. I don't know what's taking so long. I mean, it's October. We, we gave it to him last October. <laughs> And I went, what the hell is taking so long, man? Let's get this sucker out there so I can... So they kept telling me they didn't want me to play any of the songs, you know, the new songs. Because, you know, these days everybody has an iPhone, and they'll record my live, and it'll be on the internet the next day, bootleg. Right. So we're chomping at the bit to start playing some of the new songs up to heaven comes down. So was this record... With with everything that's went on with you, um, with your arm and everything, was 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 it 
completely different going in and recording Heaven Comes Down, or what was it like a what was that like making the record like going in and actually recording it? Well, you know, I could take you know six months off the therapy. You know, my my right leg was partially paralyzed too. My right arm, and I'm like, well, what are we gonna do if I can't, you know, make demos? Right. And send them to John, and then he plays them better. And so that was a, a really unusual process. And but we finally got through it, and then COVID hit, and we weren't playing. And so I would just fly to LA, you know, like every six weeks, and go to my guitarist uh, John Levins, and we just woodshed in his his studio. Right. And we and we were writing two three songs a weekend. Then I'd come back to New Mexico, and so it took some time. And then I, I really was critical about, I wanted uh, Kevin Shirley to mix the record because he's the best of the best. Fuck yeah. But he was booked He was booked like a year in advance. So as soon as the Iron Maiden album was done, I called him. He's in Australia now, so I had to send all the tracks to Australia and we are just going back and forth on the mixes. You know, I've always been in the box <laughs> mixing. I've always sat there in the studio and said, you know, more bass. Guitar, less reverb. Right. But I had to do it, do it over the phone, phone it in. It was really difficult. I bet. We ended up with like every song, like six different mixes. Oh shit! And I started, I started getting lost. I was like, so I started to just send those, you know, the mixes to the band, and I say, okay, you want mix one, two, three? Who likes what best? And and we finally came up with the consensus of what the best mixes were. So we went through all that. And then we had, you know, designed the album cover by bass player Chris McCarville is an artist. He drew the cover. It's amazing. And yeah, it's a cool cover. And so just a long process. But the whole thing with my surgery, I mean, to be honest, I mean, the first three months, you know, I, I couldn't even, you know, walk. I mean, I was in a walker, you know. Oh, my God. So, yeah, that doctor really butchered me. So that's another story. But. You know, that's the way it goes. You know, I, I, I tell myself I played guitar 50 years and uh, I've had a good run and we got through it. And the best news was, you know, we picked, I think we recorded 20 songs. Wow. And we narrowed it down to 14 of the killers and the label only wanted 10. And I said, I disagree with that, but they didn't want, you know, when you put this album out in vinyl and you can only put 10 songs on it. And they didn't want more songs on the CD because it would conflict with the sales of the vinyl. Oh, so maybe okay. at some point, you know, you get it. They're going to buy. They're going to go buy the CD. Right. You get four more songs. So I said, "All right." So we ditched four of the songs. I'm hoping down the road we can put out a bonus edition with the four bonus tracks. And as far as the extra tracks, do you think they'll ever see the lot of day? The other six. They will. Four. Oh, four, sorry. Yeah, four. <laughs> Can't do math yeah, here at no. Phantasm. <laughs> they, 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 they will, they will, or else. Well, that's good. I mean, unfor unfortunately, the four songs they ditched were the ones that I'm playing all the guitars on, which I really was happy about before sure. I got crippled. Right. But, but I wrote those four years ago, and they had a different vibe. They were more dark and solemn and heavy and... And they just wanted all the songs on the record to be more classic, dark, and up-tempo. Right. Which, that's what the record is. Yeah, it's 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 such a great record. Um, um, oh, go ahead, Don. I'm sorry. 
I just figured after 10 years since Broken Bones, we had to come up with shit. Well, yeah. Bottom line. So we were very, I was, I'm the worst producer on the planet. I'm really picky and everything had to be just, you know, really good songs, good choruses, good playing. You know, I'm just real picky. So it took time, you know, and, uh, but they said, you know, those four songs are on the burner, but, you know, if they don't want to release them, I'll put them out myself. Nice. But right now we got 10 strong songs and, you know, I have my favorites. I mean, Gypsy just came out last week. It's great. And uh, and I guess maybe it was a good thing of COVID. I said in hindsight, you know, you put out a video and people you get a twenty thousand hits. Well, Fugitive's all, all over a half a million already on YouTube. Awesome. So he must have done something right. Oh, it's great. This record's uh, it's got it all. Um, is it? For you, you had mentioned you just played in Boston. Um, is yeah. it difficult for you to do a set list now with so much great material? Absolutely. It's really hard because a lot of these promoters say, we only want you to play 90 minutes, you know? I mean, you look at Metallica's show, they play like three hours. Right. Because they have so many great songs. So I went, well, how do you drop into the fire or breaking the chains or alone again or the hunter or tooth and nail you know we can only play so many songs but i just said guys it's time to move forward and start putting the new songs in but they didn't want us to play in the new songs until the album comes out because the world has changed you know everybody's got an iphone right and they hold it up and then these songs will be out on the internet bootlegged you know oh yeah so, so we haven't played any of the new songs yet. We were going to play them the other night, but uh, we're, we're, we're just designing a new set with, we're going to put like three new songs from the album on and in the live set, because the album comes out in October, so it'll yep. be all right. So it's very hard. I guess it's a good curse if you've had so many hits. Which ones do you pick? Right. <laughs> so yeah, for- It's kind of funny, but... A lot of bands only had one or two hits, you know, and the rest is just filler. Oh, yeah, so who. much. I won't say who. <laughs> you know, I played with those bands, and, and they play their two hits and from the 80s, and the rest are songs I don't even remember. So with our set, it's just hit after hit after hit after hit. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, with the original, the all the way up, you know, from Breaking the Chains all the way up to, like, Back for the Attack, do you, do you have a favorite of those records? Honestly, my favorite record that we've done, we've done 13 now, mm-hmm. was dysfunction was dysfunctional. Oh, okay. You know, I get I like I love that record. I don't know, not because I wrote it all by myself. That was after Doc and you know, um they came back in the band when I was already finished with the record because I own my own recording studio. And right. I spent a year on that and I really loved that record. But it was a little psychedelic and I was trying to spread my wings and, you know, put sitars and this and that. And a lot of these rec- we didn't have a record deal then. And a lot of these record companies were coming at me saying, we want to sign you, but we want the record to sound like Tooth and Nail and, or Back to the Attack. And I said, well, I can't do that. That was 37 years ago. Right. And, and I was, you know, in my early 30s and 
I wrote Breaking the Chains when I was 24, right. five. And so I go, you know, you can't ask me to do that because I just write. How do I explain it? I don't like to use the word God, but, you know, I don't just sit down, you know, get up in the morning, have coffee and write a song. I wait to be inspired. Right. You know, I play, I play my guitar and, and I'll, you know, I'll be just jamming. I play my guitar five hours a day, every day. It was the love of my life. So it was, it was a tragedy when I couldn't play anymore. But I wait for the, you know, the moment, you know, and then I hear something in my head and I go, oh, I like that riff, you know, or I like that lyric, you know, and, and I'll take my little tape recorder and be sitting next to my nightstand and I'll just sing the lyrics, whatever I have, and, and the guitar, and that's how I write. And I feel bad for my engineer. Sometimes he'd come over to my studio and I go, I got nothing, boss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I got nothing. He goes, well, just play for a while. We'll come over. So I go, all right. So we spent about two hours I'm playing this, playing that. <clears throat> You know, the moon, the moon is not aligned. I'm sorry. You know, this is not, a, I'm not in the mood. Right. And, you know, people talk about the full moon and it seemed like every time there's a full moon and a couple glasses of wine, I'd come up with a cool song, you know, and, it, but, it, you know, it's, it's a long process. So I guess the two years of COVID gave me the time to write the best of the best. Right. But then I had, but then I had surgery, and I was down for the count for half a year. Right. But we got it done. So for, I've always wanted to ask you this because I was fascinated by it. So, what was it like leaving Electra and then going right into Sony? Actually, I went right into Geffen. Geffen, well, Geffen, excuse me, yeah. For well, the, I think it was a tra I think it was a tragedy. I mean. We just finished playing the Monsters of Rock tour with Van Halen, Scorpions, Metallica, Kingdom Come. And, you know, my manager said, you guys are right. How do you say, your toes are hanging off the cliff. One more great record, you guys are going to be headlining the world, play, selling out arenas. One more record, and you're, you're done, you know. Right. You're, 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 you know, we were already, you know, almost there. And, the, and our last album did, you know, almost two million. But... I just couldn't reconcile with my other band members. You right. know, we're, we're on tour and they're, you know, they were on coke and drinking and drugs. And I, I never did drugs, I, so I didn't relate. And I was begging and saying, guys, we gotta get it together, you know, or we're gonna kill our career. And especially because Metallica went on before us, mm -hmm. which is, and they were, they just kicked it, killed it every day. They just killed it. You know, and I felt like we weren't killing it. You know, now Metallica is the biggest band in the world. You know, they play the Antarctic. You know, they play anywhere they want, play stadiums. And we are on the verge of doing that, too. And we have the same managers, Metallica and us, and Tesla and Q Prime. Oh, wow. Management. Yeah. And they had a plan. They had a plan. And they said, you'll do the stadium tour, go in the studio, and your next album... To get a hit, it's game over for you guys. You'll be at the top of your game. Oh yeah. But when you got three, not one guy or two guys, it's, everybody in the band was coked up, and I have to be honest about it. Jeff, Nick, George, they were doing coke on stage during our show in stadiums, and it made me crazy. And I was depressed, and I said, I can't go on like this. So 
you know, who 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 leaves their own band? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, that I started before I even met those guys. You know, I mean, come on, man. You know, I started this band in 77, playing the Whiskey A Go-Go with Van Halen and Quiet Riot. I didn't know George, Jeff, and Mick. You know, I was the guitar player and the lead singer, and when I got, when I did Breaking the Chains, that was basically a solo album. And it actually came out in Germany, and the original cover said Don Docking on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a very rare... But it took off in Europe. And it was a picture of me in the cover chained up and it said Breaking the Chains, Don Dawkins. So when George Jeff and Mick came in the band, I wanted to be, you know, even though it was my record deal and I was a writer, I said, you know what, guys? I'm gonna make this really fair. Four way split, no arguing about who wrote what, this and that. So I basically gave up seventy five percent of the royalties and publishing to them. But, you know, I, I thought the more famous we got that they would kind of come around. Oh, yeah. And dig in, and we'd all get together and we'd write songs, and and they didn't. You know, I just was alone writing the song by myself. And it was very hard. And it was, because the more money they got, the more drugs they could buy. That was what happened. Right. So I was like, fuck, man. And, you know, I tried to get the management involved. Can you talk to the guys, get them in rehab? And, and Cliff would say basically, hey, we manage the band, but we're not psychiatrists. You guys got to work it out amongst the four of you. Right. And if you look at that movie, Metallica, they had the same problem. Remember, they had a therapist oh, yeah. in the studio with mm-hmm. them. It's on film. They have a therapist sitting there with them. And that was the same therapist that they wanted to get for us. And, you know, the band was against it. So... You know, when you haven't got that person, he look what happened. Jason Newstead left the band. Right. You know, because he couldn't, they couldn't come to terms. So we had the same problem. It was always, you know, it's infamous in the press. George and I, you're not getting along, you know. So what could I do? I moved on. I went to Geffen. I did Up in the Ashes. I tried to put a super group together. <coughs> we had Mickey, Mickey D, who came out of King Diamond to yep. knock and then went on to... Motorhead, now yep. some Scorpions. Yep. I had Peter Baltus from Accept, one of the best bass players I've ever played with. John Norm. John Norm yep. from Europe. And then I had the young upstart, Billy White, who actually I think Lars Ulrich was the one that gave me a cassette and said, there's this band in, uh, in, in Austin, Texas, and this guy's like a shredder. And I called him up. He was only 18 years old. Wow. So I had to make the decision. Do I take John Norum or do I take Billy White? And I said, you know what? I'll take them both. <laughs> there you go. So we had two guitar players that were shredding. And I was very proud of Up From The Ashes. Oh, it's a great yeah. album. But the bummer was the three of them, when the band dissolved, they sued me and took my name away for four years. God, I never knew that. Which, it's bizarre. I went to court. I said, what do, you, what do you mean you guys want to take my name? It's sue my father or my grandfather or my great-grandfather. Right. It's not It's not like a Mick Mars or Nikki Six, you know, a stage name. It's my real name. Right, it is, yeah. So, you know, we went to court, and I, they thought they would go on as Dawkins without me and have only Logan be the lead singer or Jeff. And I said, not going to happen. So at the end of the day, what they call in legal terms, split the baby... They, the judge said, 
you three guys can't use the name Dawkins, and Don, you can't use the name Dawkins. And I, I said, it's my name. You can't take my name away. Right. It, right. It's your yeah. It's your birth name. I never, I never thought it would happen. But you know, I'm not a businessman. I never trademarked it or copyright wrote it. I just didn't think anybody had the balls to try to steal my 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 name. But they did. So that's why when the album came out on Geffen, it was called Don Docking. They couldn't stop me from doing that. So that record. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Don. I just I'm fascinated with this because I never knew this. So everybody on up from the ashes, they were all tried to take Docking from you. No, up from the ashes was Billy White, John Norum, uh, you know Peter Baltus. Yes. Up from the ashes was a whole new band. Oh, okay. But I couldn't call it Dawkins. I had to call it Don Dawkins because of Jeff, Mick, and and George. George. Yeah, that's insane. Okay, I never knew that. That's nuts. A lot of people don't know that, and. You know, I said, this is insane. You know, you guys can't go up. So they tried to go out, you know, nobody, I mean, who's going to book them when, when I'm not the front man? Nobody. <laughs> nobody. <laughs> so, but I've learned historically, you can be a superstar, but, you know, look, Mick Jagger, he put out tons of solo albums. They didn't sell anything compared to the Rolling Stones. Right. You know, and then what he tried to do, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll get David Bowie and we'll do a record together, two superstars, and we'll sell millions. But in my opinion, they picked the worst song on the planet to come out with, Dancing in the Streets. Right. Which was terrible. It was. It was really terrible. It was really silly. So, you know, I go to Geffen, you know, and I got my record deal and get up from the ashes but then after that album came out, it did, it did about 450000 And then Gethin dissolved. You know, David left to start uh, DreamWorks. Right. With uh, Spielberg. So and all the, am, the grunge no, stuff no starts hitting too. So. And it did. The, the, the world changed. Yep. You know, after Up the Ashes, you had Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam. And Geffen had Guns N' Roses and Nirvana and me, and they just kind of had this feeling like the docking sound is done. We're going to concentrate on Guns N' Roses and Nirvana. So I took a hit, you know. And it pisses me off because you, you always, your vocals and lyrics were so different and you guys got labeled like a hair band. I never saw you all as that. You all were so much more than that. And lyrically, absolutely brilliant. It really bummed me out because the magazines, okay, we had wrong hair, so what? You know, but I mean, no offense to other bands that were huge, like Poison or all that. We weren't a Poison. We weren't a glam metal band. And if anybody that's docking fans these days knows... You know, we had a heavy side to us. Oh, yeah. We were kind of schizophrenic. I wrote songs like Tooth and Nail, Till the Living End, Heaven Comes Down, Kiss of Death. I can go on and on and on. But MTV, at its peak, they only wanted the quote-unquote air-friendly radio hits. Right. And that was In My Dreams, Just Got Lucky, The Hunter, Alone Again. So I, I really took offense of that magazines going and one of the best hair bands doc i go we're not a hair band 
No. You know? We weren't. Anybody who knows our records knows we had, we were just different lyrically. You know, George is a great guitar player. You know, we weren't, we weren't a hair band. No, absolutely not. But we got labeled with all those bands and Winger and all kinds of bands. Everybody got labeled as from the 80s, you're a hair band. Oh, I know. And I go, well, we'll tell that to Judas Priest and Motorhead and Saxon and, you know, it, it was bullshit. But it happened, you know, that new term came out. And then it kind of fractured, as you remember. It was like, it used to be like hard rock, heavy metal, then it turned into like thrash metal, speed metal, death metal. I mean, everybody started labeling these bands with these different names. And where, where did we fall between the cracks? Because we had big hair, you know? So, so I kind of sat out, you know, in the early 90s till that died down. And it's sad that all those great, they were great bands. But if you look, they're all dead. Yep. You know, Alice in Chains, Lane, and even Chris Cornell, and all these people started overdosing and hanging themselves. And it was an interesting thing that all these big grunge bands, the singers started dying. Yeah, it's crazy. And it was crazy. So I just kind of wrote it out, you know, between Dysfunctional in 91 you know, down the road. Then we got back together and did a record called Shadow Light, which I hated. And same problem, you know, the band, those three thought, you know, we need to be, you know, sound like Monster Magnet. Right. And I'm like, no, we're docking. We just, let me just write the damn songs how the, how the universe dictates. Right. And, and we went from, you know, Five, four, five hundred thousand and dysfunctional, and then Shadow Light came out, and the original members came back. We sold fifty, right? And I went, "Ouch!" Because everybody hated the record. I hated too. You know, I had to go pro around the world to promote it, and, and they're asking me, "Hey, so what, what, tell me about your record. What do you think?" And I go, "Uh, <laughs> it's different. It's different. It didn't sound like docking." So. That was a problem, you know. Um, it was really because the band, they wrote all the music and they just sent it to me to write the lyrics. And when I got the music, I was like, what is this? Right. You know, was, I wrote a couple songs on the album. They were pretty good. Puppets on a string and a ballad. And so it all went sideways. And then, of course, George left the band again. Right. I, I mean, he, I think he's quit the band like four times. Oh my God. I'm like, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. And then he did Lynch Mob. So I just kind of hung out and just took a break. I've been on the road since 1979. And then things started changing. Like we played the other night. We had 7,000 people, you know? It's awesome. And it, it was awesome. I was happy, you know? And it's a new generation. I noticed that. I look in the audience, I'll see people 50s, 60s, and I'll see kids out there in their 20s that weren't born when I wrote Breaking the Chains. Right. You know, you do these meet and greets now, and I ask them, You're, I saw you, you know, in the audience singing all the lyrics. How'd you know? And they said, well, our parents, you know, had kids, and you get a job, you buy a house, and things change, you're not partying anymore. And they handed all their 80s rock down to their kids. And then these kids, you know, turned 20 and up. They never got to see Dawkins. Right. 
so, so now they're all coming to the show, which is awesome. That is, it's incredible. Um, so it is. for you, is it, um, as far as like, go back early eighties, you guys are out doing the club circuit, you're playing and, and whatnot. Um, yeah. So Juan Crozier was there before Jeff. Yeah, he was original. Uh, I did my first tour in 79. It was Juan Crozier, Greg Pekka, and me. We were a three-piece. Okay. And then I did demos. And that's what came out a couple years ago called The Lost Tapes. Those were demos we did in Hamburg. And I lost those tapes for 40 years, and I finally found them during COVID. And I said, well, let's put this out just for just for people that are hardcore docking fans. They can see our roots, you know, right. long before Jeff, George, and Mick. And then the same problem happened with Juan. I mean, Juan and I, you know, toured, but he didn't get along with George either, you know? Really? And he was kind of playing with Rat, playing with Dawkins. And when I got the record deal, Juan just said, I, I don't think I can play with this guy, you know? Oh, wow. It's just, he's too eccentric, you know? So he went to Rat, which was a good call. They got really big. And that's when I found, uh, finally got the record deal in America, and we landed a tour at Bloister Colts. Nice. In Nova, and we had no bass player, and I was like, oh, shit. So I went down to a little bar, and I saw this copy band playing with a girl singer, and Jeff was on bass. <laughs> and, and I said, hey, you know, I'm Don Dawkins, we have a record coming out, and we got this huge arena tour, 10,000 people, do you want to? Uh, join, you know, the band and we audition him. And the funny thing was, he goes, I'll have to think about it. And I went, wait a minute, you're playing in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> you want to play in a bar and, and sing Little Red Corvette? Or do you want to be in docking and go out and play arenas? I mean, he actually had to ponder it. I, I was shocked. That's crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, he wasn't sure he wanted to be in the band. I was like, okay. So he finally joined and the rest is history. How did you find Mick? Mick had been playing with George and known George since high school. Oh. Yeah, literally. And, you know, they grew up together. And I actually, when I was in Germany, doing demos, getting ready to put a band together, I remembered Mick because they were in a band called The Boys. Okay. And And they were great, you know. So I called Mick. And I said, hey, you know, gave him the whole spiel. And he said, well, what about George? And I said, well, actually, I'm the, I'm the lead guitar player. And he kind of talked me into it in our documentary. He said, and then George joined the band, and that was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. That's how George got in the band, because I just, I just wanted Mick. Oh, okay. So I took George, because I knew he was a better guitar player than me. But I didn't know him. Right, you know, as a person. So when we started rehearsing and and went to Germany to do the TV show, we did called the Beat Club and all that. Yeah, I didn't really know George, and and from day one, I realized we don't get along. Right. And I think it was because you know George wanted to do his own thing, and he didn't. I asked him, God, twenty years later, what is the problem that we can't seem to get along? And he pointed at our backdrop. And he goes, that's the problem. And he pointed at my docking logo. I said, oh, I get it. Really? 
Yeah. That wow. was the problem. If we were if we were called the dead monkeys, we probably would have got along. Yeah. Oh, it was it was conflicting with his his vision of he kept saying, the more famous we get, the more famous you get. I said, we're all getting famous. What's the problem? But George, it was an ego thing, you know. He didn't like playing in a band called Dawkins. So that's the way it goes. And he left for a time. He was almost very close to getting the gig with Ozzy Osbourne. I was about to ask you about that. Now, was that... Remember that? Yeah, so I would love to hear your thoughts on this or, or what happened. So... Was he so? He's already in Doc, and and then he's he went and tried out for Ozzy, or how did that? How did that happen? Yeah. Well, I don't. I only just I hired them to come to Germany to play the record. Okay. They weren't in the band. They were just hired musicians. Gotcha. And then, and then the record started to explode in Europe. They went back to America. George had the offer to go audition for Ozzy. I think it was down to him, Jakey Lee, and somebody else after, you know... Uh, the cat from Night Rangers. Right. That's right. Brad Gillis. Brad Gillis. Brad Gillis, yep. yeah. So, George left, and I think he thought it was a sure thing. They flew him to London, for God's sakes, and he was at the top. But... They decided they didn't want George for probably the same reasons. <laughs> they thought he was too eccentric. And uh, hey, I know a lot of great guitar players. They're all eccentric. Oh, yeah. You have, to be, you have to be a little nuts to be good, I guess. I don't know. So we were getting ready to showcase at the Whiskey. And I actually had Warren D. Martini, who had been playing a rat. Mm-hmm. And he joined the band for a minute, and we showcased with him. And I remember the night we showcased, and I could see George out in the audience. And I was like, what the hell? You know? And I was going, "What the, is that George? And he had come back, losing the gig in Ozzy. And he literally pulled Warren aside, who was like 18, and telling him, you don't want to be a document. No, no, man. You know, Don's a pain in the ass. He's a prima donna. He's an asshole. You don't want to. He don't want to be in this band because he wanted his gig back. Right, right. And then the EP came out with Rat, Juan and Warren, and Warren went with Rat. So I took George back, and uh, my my mistake. <laughs> Is it weird that you made such amazing music with it? What almost feels like three strangers. It was, I mean, people, I think everybody believed in Doc and we were kind of like a Van Halen where George wrote the music and I wrote the lyrics, but it wasn't like that. I wrote the music too. Not everything, George wrote a lot of songs. Right. As far as the big hits and singles, it was mostly me. You know, in my little apartment, my little four track recording machine. And they, the three of them would you know, get an ounce of cocaine and they're all writing together and they present their songs and I present my songs and and the label would pick which songs go on the record. And they always ended up being mostly mine and I think they thought I was in cahoots with the label or something. <laughs> that was Tom Zutat who signed Guns N' Roses and Bobby Crew and famously in our guy. I said, look, I don't, you know, he's picking the songs, not me. And then when we did Unlocking Key, I wrote about 
uh, if you look at the early records, they'll say George, Jeff, Nick, even though they had minimum to do with those songs. Right. So when I, when I wrote Under Lock and Key, the band's like, we didn't want the whole album to say Don Dockin, Don Dockin, Don Dockin, Don Dockin. So they said, okay, we're going to change the credits and say all songs written by Dockin, period. Right. And I thought, well, that's petty, but Under Lock and Key says that. And it says, and Dockin is blah, 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 blah. Right. And I said, I don't understand. It doesn't matter who writes the hits. It's a four-way split, boys. I mean, the truth is, who got the luckiest was Mick. You know, he got 25% of everything we ever made. He made millions. Right. All he had to do was spend one week in the studio playing drums, and he was done. Right. You know? So that's how it all went down. It's a long, long, sordid story. And, you know, the rest is history. And then, of course, George spent a year bashing me on in the press. And, right. You know, that I was greedy and I wanted my own thing. And I'm like, no, it's just I just couldn't play with them anymore. You know, I mean, Metallica almost didn't survive. You know, you look at their documentary and right. they got a therapist in the studio with them. So we should, probably should have done the same. Well, and the rest is history. They come, they go. They come, they go. Was it Under Lock and Key is such a, a great album. Uh, my favorite track on that one is uh, Don't Lie to Me. Oh, yeah. That's a, it's a good, very catchy chorus. And the guitar part, uh, I think George wrote the guitar part. So that was kind of a good collaboration. But... You know, it just is what it is, you know, and our rotten key exploded. I remember we were on tour with uh, Aerosmith, Permanent Vacation. I was talking to Stephen Tyler one night. He's, they're all excited. They go, hey, man, our album just went gold. They said, that's awesome. How's your album doing? I go, it's platinum. <laughs> it only been out three weeks. Wow. They're like, you shit me. I go, nope. It just took off, you know right time at the right place i have to get credit to mtv like mick said once when we put out the breaking the chains video which is pretty cheesy they would play that video every 45 minutes because the younger people don't realize that mtv was just 24 hours a day music right but they didn't have but they didn't have enough videos so they just kept playing the same videos over and over and over and over again you know oh yeah so it helped us it helped us and then ex exploded, you know, the next year. But then it all kind of changed. You had Blondie and Devo and the New Wave and, mm -hmm. you know, and Bowie. and Everything was going every which way. And then, of course, Quiet Riot, who I played for forever on the strip, they went to number one. Oh, They're yeah. The first hard rock band, and they knocked Michael Jackson out of number one. That's crazy. Which was pr pretty amazing, huh? Oh, yeah. Um. So everything was great, you know, but we all just wrote what we wrote. And, but there was just this constant, you know, uh, I asked Mick, I mean, Jeff, after a year of touring, I said, why'd you hesitate, you know, to join the band and get out of that damn bar? Because he is a lead singer and he wanted to be a front man. Oh, he I didn't know that. his own band. Yeah, he wanted to be a front man. And I said, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the front man. You can play bass. And, you know, now, 40 years later, he's still playing bass in Foreigner. So, 
it wasn't meant to be. You right. know, uh, the, the, the universe does what it wants to do. Oh, absolutely. He's been in Florida for like 22 years now. Yeah, it's wild. And isn't Kelly from Hurricane also in Foreigner? Yeah. That's crazy, Great. too. And, and he really cops the uh, Grand Bonnet style, you know? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Great singer, great frontman. The funny thing about Foreigner is there's no original members. <laughs> Nobody cares. They're still playing big venues, but... You know, Mitch shows up once in a while. You know, but basically, I don't know who's in that band. You know? Yeah, I don't either. I don't. I, I just know the two of them, just Jeff, and because of Dawkins, and then Kelly because of Hurricane. But that's it. Hurricane. But they're a cover band, basically. But they're doing great. You yeah. Know, and God bless them for it. Yep. For you, was it? Again, I cannot stress to you enough lyrically how much your music means to me. Like your lyrics were so different than anything else that was out at the time um very some of it very dark and i i really related to a lot of it some of the stuff on uh back for the attack yeah and i loved it uh i was listening to lost behind the wall before we did this interview oh my god what a kick-ass song um and i wrote that when i was going to germany in the 70s we actually was one went to East Berlin, which was still the Russian side. Right. And, and it freaked me out, you know, being American and, you know, they got tanks and machine guns and you go to Checkpoint Charlie and, you know, and people were trapped, you know, half the city was communist and half the city was, you know, democratic. And, yep. And that's, that's what inspired me to say Lost Behind the Wall. That's how I wrote it. It's about the wall, the, the Berlin Wall. Just everything you did lyrically, I mean, I just, I couldn't, just still can't get over because it. it was so much different, and your vocal style was so much different than everything else that was out. Um, yeah, much different. Like Lost Behind the Wall in the middle of the song, I say, Dimara Musbek. And that is what uh, the, our president, when he went there, Dimara Musbek was their slogans that meant tear it down. You know, so in Lost Behind the Wall in the middle, I say, Dimara Musbek. That was like tear the wall down, and like two years later, they tore it down. Yes, they did. <laughs> so, those my those are my inspirations. You know, I mean, I wrote in my dreams. You know, in Puerto Vallarta on vacation, sitting on the beach with a bottle of tequila. You know, and I wrote the whole song in twenty minutes. Wow! It just it was a perfect night, and the stars, and I was thinking, and what I, I don't know what I was thinking. I remember I scribbled the lyrics on the back of a magazine. And I came home and demoed in my dreams. And uh, I remember George hated it. <laughs> oh, God. And he didn't want to do it. And the record company said, no, you got to put that song on the record. So, you know, I it's a bummer that I have to wait to be inspired. I just, I'm not a, I'm not a technician. I don't just pick up my guitar and write a song. A lot of bands did. Right. I remember I, I was having, a, I remember a, Gene Simmons lived on the same street as me when I had my house in L.A. up in Betty Canyon. Uh-huh. And it's like it was the street that all the rock stars lived on. <laughs> and Gene invited me over for Thanksgiving. We had a nice dinner and Sharon cooked. And his kids were fans of Dawkins. And I, afterwards, me and Gene would go in his office where all that, you know, God, everything, you know, dolls, coffins, uh, anything that 
to me, he was a genius at marketing. Absolutely. I remember I was sitting there and I said, wow, you should put out Kiss condoms. He goes, oh, I got them right here. <laughs> this <is a laughs> jar. Hey, take a couple. And I went, man, you didn't miss anything. And, you know, they were huge. He was telling me how the millions and millions of dollars they made in the 70s on Halloween costume masks. Wow. You know, you had, because you had the fourth, the cat and the demon and Ace and, you know, they made millions of dollars on Halloween costumes. Right. And so I said something about, I was working on a record and I said, well, it's taken a long time because I have to wait until I'm inspired. And I say, well, it's, you know, because for me, it's 80% inspiration and 10% work. And he said to me, no, you got it wrong. It's 80% work and 10% inspiration. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I said, Gene, you're punking me. You don't really believe that, do you? You know, and uh, he said, yeah. But so we had different feelings about how to write a song. Right. I found that really funny. 80% work, 10% inspiration, 20% inspiration. It's incredible. So let me ask you this. Dream Warriors, did you get asked to write the song for Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, or had you already written that song and they just the label sold it to them, or how, how did all that happen? They approached us to write the track, and that was the first time anybody had told me what the chorus had to be. Oh. You know, that they'd already titled the movie it was going to be Dream Warriors. So I asked the director, you know, they were kind of almost just editing, and they sent me like a rough cut of the movie, and it was about Freddy coming out of the beds, and, and he comes to them in their dreams. And mm-hmm. So same thing. The three of them wrote a version of Dream Warriors, and I wrote a version of Dream Warriors, and their version one. Oh. So the version you did was completely different. Completely different. In fact, you're, you're, the band said afterwards, yeah, we liked your version better, but we're going with ours. <laughs> My version was more up-tempo, you know. Oh, okay. But that's how we, they asked us to write a song, but it had to be called Dream Warriors. So I was like, okay, I, you know, can you give me a script or what's this movie about? And that's how I came up with the lyrics, you know. Did you ever get to meet Robert England? Oh, yeah. We did the video with him, of course. Right. And then I just about a year ago, there's a channel called Gibson TV from the Gibson Guitars, and they were doing like a, a short series, and they asked me to come to L.A. with Robert England, and we did like a big interview, you know. So oh, cool. see it on YouTube. And we talked... You know, what are you up to? What are you up to? And I said, well, I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Robert's going, hey, I have a house there, too. I said, oh, cool. He goes, yeah, I go up there in the winter and ski or something. But he's still, even after those all those movies he did and they left, he's still very successful, you know, on Broadway and plays. And he's got a good life. So we we, we talked, and it was great. That's incredible, Don. Um, yeah. So back to Heaven Comes Down. Um, as far as uh, the track arrangements, did you handle that as well? Yeah. I did everything. I produced it, wrote it. You know. It's incredible. Such a great record. Um, I'm really happy. And I knew that after so long since our last record, 
and all the tragedies we had. I mean, sure. our bass player shattered his shoulder. Oh my God. And like, yeah, like his, his uh, femur bone, his arm, in like eight pieces. Gosh. And had to screw it back together so he couldn't play bass for a year. Wow. Then John had, then John had to have surgery because his fingers were going to sleep when he played. And he had to have surgery. And then I had my surgery. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. This band's had one tragedy after another. Absolutely. So the record, the, the record drug on, you know. It drug on and on and on. And then COVID. Right. And they passed that rule. You couldn't play any place that would hold more than 200 people. I said, well, what's the point? So we just stayed home for two years. And I said, well, I guess we'll write the record. I've actually got COVID right now. <laughs> right now? Yep. My co-host and I, um, he came down to visit me. We went to Disney on Monday, literally Monday of this week, and I got diagnosed with it Thursday morning. So. You, you mean you went to Disneyland? Yeah, Disney World. I live Disney in Orlando. World. Yeah. Oh, and that's, you know, I, I always said, if anybody's going to get COVID, we are, because we're playing in front of thousands of people. Right. You know, even though it was dying down, we played Florida, and that governor didn't have any mask restrictions. No. And we, and we played in front of, like, in Orlando, we played in Florida for, like, 25,000 people. Wow. And I said, guys, don't talk to anybody. Don't shake any hands. Keep your masks on. Go straight to the hotel. Go to your room. We'll go straight to the stage, take our masks off, and play, and put our masks right back on. Fucking nice. Because I thought, sure, if anybody's going to get fucking COVID, we are. Right. You know? <laughs> and I, I never got it. I, I think I got it about a year ago, but I'd already been vaccinated. I just felt like shit for about a week. Don, I had it last year, and it almost uh, killed me. And they said, if you don't vax, you know, some people are against vaccination, some were for it. Sure. But all my all my friends that didn't get vaccinated, they got really sick. Oh yeah. I just felt bluish and tired and right. headaches and so I did the three vaccinations. But now they're saying you need, you need to get another one. And I'm like, I'm over it. No more shots for me or I'm gonna be sterile. You know? Right. It's it's but, uh, it's awful. I can't believe it. It's awful. Yeah, everybody said you feel like you wanna die. Yeah, it's not it's not good, and I've got a lot of... I'm on a drug called Dupixent for my eczema, and it lowers my immune system. Oh, shit. So I had just got that. I wasn't thinking about it. I went and got it like I always do on Friday, last a week ago. And then I'm, I'm at Disney Monday, and then Wednesday I got sick. I mean, I could have gotten it at a gas station, but my yeah, doctor's like, you I... probably got it at Disney, but, you know, who knows? Well, yeah, well, like, as much as we fly to gigs... You expect you're going to get it. Oh yeah. You know, and I don't think anybody in Dawkins got it. I don't think so. I don't Thank God. Or I think John maybe had it, but it wasn't a bad one. That's good. But I've been lucky. Knock on wood. And then my <laughs> girlfriend's been sick for three weeks, and I said, "But I went down and got a test, and I thought she had COVID, but it was negative." Good. She's just she's just got the flu. Well, I mean, I hate that she said, but it, thank God it's not COVID. I'm telling you, it's bad. And everybody that got it said, I just wanted to die. I couldn't breathe. My chest hurt. You know? Oh, yeah. It's horrible. And you're older. You know, I'm and we're older. It's not fun. <laughs> and I'm on. Uh, I, I, 
they gave me, if you end up having to get it, if, if you're allowed to take it, and a lot of people have health restrictions, they gave me the same thing I asked for it this time because they gave it to me last year and it saved my life, is uh, Paxlovid, the pills. Right, right. Paxlovid. Let me tell you, Don, it's a godsend. I'm on it right now and I'm already starting to feel a little stronger. It, it takes a while to work, but it works real well. So. Yeah, we act, I actually had a prescription for that too and he said if you're feeling crappy and test positive to take the patch love it'll just ease your pain oh yeah but it changed everything and you know I, I mean it's a terrible thing but i had the time for two years not touring to write heaven's heaven comes down the title was there a specific inspiration for that yeah, well, it's one of our songs. I know, oh, I know that. I figured, I, I was assuming that, but I figured I would ask you. I don't know why I do that. I always title the records, and it's always off of, of one of our songs. But I figured I wouldn't get COVID, because I live, I moved out of L.A. after my whole life, and I live up on a mountain, and my nearest neighbor is a mile away. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty isolated. The band finally came to see me, and, and said, what the hell are you doing in New Mexico? And I said, I'm just done with L.A. and I want to get out of here. And I want to have no neighbors and I want peace and quiet. And so I finally found this crazy house that was sitting up on a mountain all by itself to some eccentric millionaire built. And it had been sitting there for like two years empty. Wow. Because to get to my, my, my driveway is a mile long. That's awesome. A mile. A mile. And uh, and I realized why nobody bought it because in the winter it snows you. You can't even get up unless you're in four wheel driving chains. So I bought it and I've spent you know three years you know renovating it. It was a it kind of looks like an old Italian villa. It's amazing. Very untraditional New Mexico style. And I said, well, you know, we'll just buy a lot of groceries and we'll hole up. You know, awesome. so we just stay away from people and not go out in public, and all the restaurants were closed down, and so I didn't get COVID. You know, I finally brought the band up here, and they're like, "When you said you lived <laughs> re remotely, you ain't kidding. <laughs> you weren't fucking and around." That, no, and that's what the song Fugitive's about. Really? Yeah, like I'm a fugitive from life. I said, "I'm, I'm, I'm bugging out, man." I mean, look at the world. I mean, it's so sad, you know. The wars and the and, and got murderers like Putin, you know, and the Ukraines and war and uh, the crime rates gone through the roof. And you have fentanyl epidemics. 100, 200 people a day died from that fentanyl. Oh, I know. And it's the whole the whole world changed. You know, back in the 80s, you just... You got your cocaine from Carlos Escobar, and it didn't kill you. It didn't <laughs> do too much of it. But the world changed, and I just said, man, what it's like the apocalypse. So I moved up here, and I just look out my windows, and I can see 100 miles in every direction, and there's nothing. It's just me and the mountain and our dogs. That's amazing. Sounds like Castle, yeah. Castle Dawkins. Yeah, that's where my agent said. He goes, "How's your castle coming along?" I said, <laughs> "It's it's it's coming along." The bummer was I got about halfway done remodeling, and then I lost my right arm. So I'm sorry about that. I got paralyzed. It really sucked. And they said it'll come back. It'll come back. I just had supposedly a very simple spinal surgery in my neck, and the doctor totally 
severed all the nerves in my right arm from the shoulder down. It really fucked up my life, you know? I'm sorry, Dolan. That's horrible. I, 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 I can't even hold a screwdriver. I'm not left-handed, man. So, you know, it's taken some time to finish it, but I'm about 99% done with this place. I'm but, glad. Uh, I like the peace and quiet, and, you know, I can turn my marshals on 10, and nobody hears me. <laughs> That's got to be nice. It's paradise. I mean, it's different. I was born and raised in L.A. Right. I never thought I'd leave. I lived in Manhattan Beach my whole life. Right. You know, I was a, I was a beach boy, you know, and... And then I moved to Beverly Hills and I hated it because uh, I'm not trying to sound like a snob. Everybody's so <coughs> arrogant and, you know, they, they judge you on what kind of car you have, you know. Oh, you're driving a two-year-old car? You must be poor. <laughs> right. So it was time for me to leave. And here I am. And that's the way it is. So, But it made the writing process very difficult because John's in L.A. still. Chris and BJ are in Connecticut. But with the internet and everything, and we all record in Pro Tools, we just send our files back and forth. And, you know, Chris would cut the bass, send it back to me, I'd put it back in the song. BJ would cut the drums, send it back to me, I'd put it in the song. And then we sent everything to Kevin Shirley in Australia. So it was a pretty weird record. How we even accomplished it's a miracle. It's so good. I, it's a good record. And, uh, you know, Everybody says, yeah, my new record's amazing. You know, I never said that about Shadow Life when I did press. <laughs> I went around the world. I went around the world, and every time they talked, and I was with George, actually. We were both on the press tour, and I was like, I didn't know what to say. You know, they're like, so what do you think of the new record? I go, it's different. What's your favorite song? Mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't want to, I, I wasn't about to lie, you know, because I hated the record. And it was our worst record ever. But now, you know, I've been doing press for two weeks. Germany, Italy, Spain, France, Russia, Poland. Wow. I mean, I've done so much press. And I'm really happy that everybody says, you say it's a great record. Oh, it's, it's, a, I, it's awesome. I think this record, I mean, look, the, the first video is over, over half a million. That says something. And I keep saying, that's nothing. That's just one song. Wait till people start buying the record and hear the other nine tracks. I mean, we had the luxury of writing 20. I wrote 25 songs, narrowed it down to 14. The record company took four off, which I wasn't happy about. And I hope we do a you know special edition with the other four because those are they're dark. Not real dark, but they're just... But the bummer was I played guitar on those. I found it interesting that the songs they didn't want were the ones I played on, not John. It's bizarre. I thought, that's, that's weird. Because my guitar style is totally different. And, you know, I wrote them, you know, when I was having problems with my spine. And uh, I, it became the joke. <laughs> my son and daughter were at the hospital in L.A. And I'm going to surgery. I'm looking at the doctor. He's supposed to be the best. And I said, just do me a favor. Don't kill me and don't paralyze me. <laughs> right. So I said to him, right before I went under, I wake up and my whole right arm's complete. I couldn't move it an inch. And I was like, what did you do to me? You know what he said? Sorry. That's where I'd be sorry. like, sorry, you can talk to my attorney. 
that's what I'm doing now. And then I fucking I. Chinese. I can't say his name because I'm in a lawsuit. I understand. And uh, I said to him, I said, what do you think would have happened if you did this to Yo-Yo Ma, the most famous celloist in the world, and you crippled his right hand so he couldn't bow anymore? You know, and he, and he told everybody who you were. You'd probably get disbarred or kicked out of the hospital. I said, I haven't told anybody who you are, so I'm not allowed to. Right. And what does he say to me? He goes, yeah, but you're not Yo-Yo Ma. I found that very insulting. It is. You're not Yo-Yo Ma? I don't care if I'm a plumber, man. You should have done your best job. Well, yeah, absolutely. I've got got 14 titanium screws, two titanium plates, all the way down the middle of my back. I mean, I can't even turn my head more than one inch left or right. I can't look down. I mean, he really fucked me up, man. I'm sorry. That's awful, Don. Yeah, it's a bummer. I realize now, though, you go through phases. First, you go through depression. Then you get angry as you got screwed. And then right. you go through, I want, I want revenge. <laughs> Fucking A. So, but thank God the, the music was written, you know, all done. John had written a bunch of songs. I wrote songs. So I can still sing. So, you know, that's, uh, I guess that's a blessing, you know. It is. And I'm grateful I can finally go. You know, we did a couple shows. Mm, I don't know, a year and a half ago, and I wasn't well. I wasn't singing well. My throat. Uh, I couldn't stand on stage for two hours. I had to sit down. My legs would give out. Sure. Because of the paralysis. So I told the band was take a break. You know, I got to get well. So I go to the gym Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and just work out. Right. And try to make the rest of my body as strong as possible to compensate for my problem. Right. And I just played the other night. It was all great, you know. So now we're trying to look at Europe and go to the festivals, then go to Japan. Fuck yeah. And we're winding down now. We only got, looking at my refrigerator, we've only got eight shows to go. And our last show for the West Coast is the Whiskey. We wouldn't play there usually anymore because it's too small. Right. You know, for us. But I said, you know, guys, it's like going home. I started there with Van Halen, Quiet Riot, Rat. We all played the whiskey. Right. And it was it was good times in the 80s, you know? And the whiskey was like the place you wanted to play. Oh, yeah. I mean, the door, look at the doors were the, people, the doors were the house band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the 60s, people don't realize the doors were the house band at the whiskey. And, and they had go-go dancers in cages and shit like that, you know? It's incredible. And I remember like 77, 78, we're playing Van Halen, and I remember saying, someday we're going to play the whiskey in the headline, sell it out. I never realized we'd end up in stadiums, and that's something that Eddie Van, Eddie Van Halen and I talked about on Monsters of Rock in 88. And Eddie and I would, you know, sit on the stairways in the hotel if we weren't traveling. And we talk about who would have thought we were playing the whiskey just, you know, 10 years ago, and now we're playing stadiums. Oh, yeah. And Eddie goes, yeah, it's trippy, huh? And Eddie, even Eddie goes, man, I never thought we'd get that far. And when he passed away, it really, really, it really fucked me up, you know, for a while. I mean, I was crying every day. I, I miss him so much. Right. One of the greatest guitar players in the world. 
He was always my favorite. And, you know, Eddie changed the world with his two two hands on the neck at once, you know? Oh, yeah. Nobody, nobody had done that. I remember I was the lead guitar player and the lead singer. First time I saw Eddie play, I remember thinking to myself, I should just concentrate on singing because I'll never be as good as him. Right. <laughs> he was a genius. And you know what? As famous as he was, I can swear that of all the rock stars I've met, he was one of the nicest, mellowest guys in the world. He That's... wasn't arrogant. He wasn't cocky. We would just sit around and, you know, drink some beers and just talk about stuff that people wouldn't think about. We, <laughs> we talk about amplifiers and pickups and which strings do you use and shit like that. So cool. Talk, you know, I missed him. And then, you know, after that stadium tour, I just was, he just was a great guitar player. And all my heroes are gone, you know? I mean, I can, there's a, it's a long list of great guitar players that have passed away this, just this year. Oh, it's awful. It really is when you get older. I get tired of getting texts. Hey, so and so died, so and so died, so and so. I go, you got to be kidding me. Gary Moore and, and Eddie and God, I can't even think of who died this year. Well, look. Prince. Oh, no. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, Michael Jackson. Who would have thought, you know? Oh, I know. Or uh, Kevin Dubrow, you know? Oh, yeah. Takes a couple sleeping pills, nothing heavy, a couple cocktails, and he dies in his sleep. I'm like, what the hell? So I'm grateful. I'm 70 now, man. I'm old. And I'm just grateful to still be playing. And I'm grateful that... Like two nights ago, just twenty four hours ago, I was standing in front of seven, eight thousand people. It's awesome. And they all and they knew every song, they sang every lyric. And I was like, This is so cool and I am so blessed that here we are in two thousand twenty three and we have a whole new audience. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, it's really you know, and we play with a lot of bands, other bands that warm up for us. We usually always headline. But, you know, to be really blunt, you know, a lot of those bands had one hit, two hits, and that was it. That's our curse. Well, I mean, I, hits. I could never see a Doc in Greatest Hits because, like, I mean, the first, <laughs> the first fucking five things, every, everything on there is just, I mean... I was listening to Paris is Burning in the car the other day as loud as I could before I got sick and was just like, ah. Oh. I mean, it's... it's a killer. Yeah. And we wrote it over 40 years ago. And I always say on stage, I'm going to play a song, you know, that I wrote, you know, for over 40 years ago. And... Look, kiss my girlfriend. And, and I say, I'm going to play a song to you hardcore fans was the first hit we ever had. We played Breaking the Chains. Everybody knows it. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm like, holy shit. It was the song I wrote in 1981, my first single. And here we are all these decades later, and everybody still loves it. It's incredible. So it's it's really, I mean, if we if we were you know down to that level, like if some bands were just playing little clubs, I would have retired, you know? Oh, yeah. We played Bakken Festival three years ago. We had 50,000 people. And I was like, holy shit, we're still really big in Europe. 
Oh, it's incredible. So I feel blessed. I hope the record does well, but you know, if the world has changed because you put a record out on Monday and they goes on Spotify on Tuesday. Right. And everybody downloads it for free. Right. I yelled at my kids when they used to do it when we were young. I said, I can't make a living when people are downloading our songs for free. Right. You know, no, there are no more record stores. Nope. You know, we're actually putting out um, Heaven Comes Down on vinyl. That's awesome. You know? But everything changed with the internet. It changed, yeah. Like it, everybody, you're, you're younger, but when I tell my daughter, who's 34, that there were no cell phones or internet in the 80s. She just can't grasp it. <laughs> right. I mean, it's... I remember I, it's weird. It, it, well, yeah, I mean, and it's... It, you know, I remember growing up and buying, you know, back for the attack on vinyl at a record bar, which was a record right. store back then. And I remember buying it and then going and seeing you guys on tour. You know? Exactly. And yeah. it's completely yeah. different yeah. now. Well, Tower Records, you know. Was oh, yeah. From the whiskey. They were an iconic, huge, 25,000 square foot record store. And when they went out of business, I was like blown away. Yeah. And I, mean, I remember uh, when Tooth and L came out, they painted the whole side of the store with our claw coming out of the water. And stuff. That's awesome. But they're all gone. And now there's this big revival of people want to buy vinyl. Yeah, vinyl's very popular and very expensive. Yeah, I mean, you know, I went to Best Buy the other day. I lost my phone to buy a new one. They're selling turntables. Oh, yeah. Like, Holy shit. They're selling <laughs> turntables. <laughs> Who would have thought? I know. They're going to bring eight tracks back next. I don't know. Well, I have a couple of platinum records, and it's a platinum record, and underneath it's a, it's a cassette. In the in the frame, sure. And I remember I went to Gaffin and they said we're not going to be putting your uh, record out of cassette. I said you got to be kidding me! Everybody's got a cassette player in the car. And they said no, it's over with cassettes. It's CDs now. And my my car I have now when I bought it, there's no CD player. It's all digital, Nothing. yeah. It's all serious radio, man. It's completely anyway, different. I'm going to have to jump here shortly because i got another interview in 10 minutes. Don, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, kids, pick up Heaven Comes Down. Go see Dawkin. Heaven Comes Down comes out October 27th. Silver Lining Music. Don, it's been an absolute honor to speak with you today. And again, if I may say one more time, you are literally one of the best vocalists and lyricists ever. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I hope you get better soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm hanging in there, man. The, hopefully the Paxlovid kicks the shit out of this and I can just get back to normal. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, if I got it, we wouldn't be able to play, you know. So it's uh, it's just the world, Scott. It's just a crazy world right now. That's why I named the album Heaven Comes Down. It's like all the demons are coming out. The whole world's a mess, you know, and it really is. Oh, absolutely. You know? I can't watch the news. No, it's fucking. You know, it's a shit show. Fentanyl addiction, fentanyl from China and Russia, people overdosing every day on the news. Somebody gets shot. Yeah, children are getting you know at crazy bastards. You know, 
these right-wing guys going to you know grammar schools and assassinate children. It's awful. That didn't happen. That didn't happen in the eighties. No, it did not. <laughs> I don't remember that on the news. Everybody's twenty-year-olds carrying around an AK forty-seven. What no. the hell? You know, everything changed. It's like the movie Maximum Overdrive that Stephen King did. There's a quote from that movie I've been using lately. It said, the whole world's gone tits up. It has. Yeah. You know, in the 80s, it was all about, you know, girls and short skirts and push-up rods. And, you know, nowadays, I, I told the band, you know, I go, you can't even, if a girl comes backstage and she's dressed to the nines, you can't comment. And say, wow, your ass looks good in that miniskirt, or wow, that your boobs are hanging, you know, something like that. They'll sue you, or can't, or you, you know? get canceled. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this whole PC thing has gone too far. Oh, it's crazy. If women are dressed like that, you would think because they want a compliment. Oh, I know. But now, I mean, look at this: the the Spanish women's football team won the World Cup first time in history, right? And all, all the coach did is just give her a kiss, a little kiss. And she said, I didn't agree to that, and it's on the news, and goes to the government, and they fire him. And oh, yeah. I'm like, it wasn't like he grabbed her ass or he stuck his tongue in her mouth. He just gave her a kiss because he was excited. Right. They won. And I said, well, wait a minute. You know, in, in, in Russia and France, when you need something, they kiss you on the left cheek and the right cheek. That's just French and Russian culture. Absolutely. And Spanish. So the guy was excited. They won. And the girl goes public and said, I didn't, you know, he shouldn't have kissed me. I, I wasn't down with that. And I'm like, it was just a pet. <laughs> and it's on CNN every five minutes. And they fire his ass. I'm like, for one kiss. I'm telling you, That's it's bullshit. overreaction on everything and overanalyzing everything. But. Everything is PC. Got to be careful what you say. You can't say anything to a woman, or they'll say you're a misogynist and you know you're a dog, and I'm going to sue you. Yep. I mean, look at all these, these senators and congressmen that are getting sued because inappropriate behavior. Yep. I'm like, whatever. It's crazy. You know, the world's fucked up. So I tell the band, be careful. You know, don't say anything about. Their butt hanging out of their miniskirt will sue you. Yep. <laughs> Don, I wish you all the best. You're literally one of my heroes. My co-host loves you. We both love you. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope you have a great weekend. And thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry I talked your head off. No worries, man. I got I'm off for ten days. I got nothing else to do. <laughs>